On July 6th, we headed to Fullerton Farms Partnership near Andover with a couple of hundred farmers for the 10th National Organic Combinable Crops event. Famed for its delicious lunches and plentiful tea breaks, the day was alive with farmers, traders, researchers, millers, processors and bakers exchanging ideas of how to work together to support ecological farming methods and grow and make healthy food. This is a special episode commissioned by Organic Farmers and Growers, who organised NOCC. They're one of the UK's largest organic certification bodies. Their commitment to be open, innovative and support a better farming future for all echoed throughout every corner of the barn. Here's organiser Stephen Jacobs. Knock, what's it all about? National Organic Combinable Crops, or NOC, is the event we hold each year to bring the community together to share knowledge. It's based around combinable crops, that's cereals and pulses, looking at the challenges of growing them organically, but also the markets available. We have everybody come together for breakfast in the morning, then straight into the talks and panel discussions, then the farm walk, where we take people around different parts of the site, looking at crop varieties. We've got agroforestry represented this year. We also have a detailed look at soil analysis. Then we all get back together for an organic lunch and then some more talks and panel discussions in the afternoon followed by tea and cake. It's our annual get-together. It's well attended and we're very pleased this year to be hosted by the Liddell family in New Hampshire. And just so you know, it was so hot. The sweltering heat kept everyone sweaty, but undeterred to gather every grain of knowledge they could. Tim May was one attendee, and he shares with us his impression of the event. It's quite hot. Uh, I'm sort of in that stage at the moment as a, a newcomer into organic production, organic cereals, as to try and understand what the market wants. I always actually like coming to, to mix with the organic farmers. They always seem a bit more market-orientated. They're a bit more willing to take control of their own destiny than, than the conventional farmers. So there's normally a bit more of a buzz about their products and a bit more pride in what they're doing. So it's a very sort of upbeat sort of deal. We start with what to grow. In the morning panel discussion, there was a call for more farmers to trial new and different varieties on farm. The message was clear. Citizen science and on-farm research are vital in order for the organic arable sector to continue to develop and produce high-quality, nutritious grains. Researcher Ed Dickin tells us about some breeding trials he's been doing on his parents' farm. It's taken him 10 years to get this far, but as one organic grower pointed out, it could happen much quicker if more farmers were involved in the development of crop trials. I'm Ed Dickin, I'm a lecturer at Harper Adams, but my research interest, which is a bit of a hobby, is breeding cereals, looking at nutrition and human health as well as for yield. So the main one I do is naked barley, which is barley specifically for human food. It threshes freely, a bit of a tongue twister, free threshing from the husk, so you can use it for human food without further processing. So you don't have to purl it. So purling is what's done to normal covered barley, which is the abrasion of the hull, but that also removes the germ or the embryo and not the bran, which is where a lot of the good stuff is. So naked barley can be used as whole grain 
without that need for curling. And then what you do with it, you can flake it, you can mill it for flour, you can use it as a whole grain in things like risotto as a substitute for rice and anything else you can think of. Stephen Jacob with the Organic Farmers and Growers, he came to one of the events we did with the Welsh Grain Forum who got interested when I was working at Bangor University on the Naked Bible. So the Parries, who've got a water mill at Bellingganon near Aberystwyth, they were looking at milling some of the naked barley. So that sort of got an introduction through them. Then growing Hen Gumro, which is an old Welsh wheat variety. So this is where other interests started coming in. That's when I got the contact with Andy Forbes at Brockwell Bake and started also experimenting with some of the old wheats as well. So now expanded into wheat, rivet wheat as well, and looking a bit at Emma and all sorts of other grains as well as naked barley. At the moment the markets are small. We're dealing with two companies at the moment, Hodler Dodds, who many of the people would have heard of with the, uh, the pulses, but they're, they're also interested in grains. Their, their first product is a naked barley flake, which can be used in breakfast cereals, it can be added to bread, and you can make really good porridge out of it, especially if you mix it with oats, because the oats give a bit of a creaminess, and then the, the barley flakes give it a bit, a bit more flavour, a bit of bite. And also Edme, who provide ingredients for bread making, and they've been looking at it for their whole soft process, where they sort of hydrate and cook the grains and supply them pasteurised in vacuum packed bags and then bakers can add those grains straight into their dough and because those grains are already hydrated they're not going to suck moisture out of the dough so you don't have to adjust your, your water and flour volume so they're ready to use so those are the two companies at the moment we're also talking to various other people and so there, there is interest at the moment on a fairly small scale Today has been really useful. It's great to talk to interested people and interesting people with sort of similar ideas. I'm not an organic farmer, I'm a conventional farmer, but finding I have a lot in common. And this whole idea of trying to develop shorter supply chains and getting good relationships with perhaps smaller processes, people like Hodmerdods, I think that's the way to go and bring these different crops forward. Because really, growing commodity crops at the moment either conventional or maybe even organically, it is very difficult. We're competing with, say, maize production in the States, for example, for animal feed, and we just can't do it. In the morning panel, scientist and innovator Martin Wolf talked about the ORC Wakelands population that he has been breeding for many years. He told us that the breeding of this population is based on a simple principle at the core of Charles Darwin's theory of evolution that we must have diversity in our breeding populations to ensure a resilient future for that crop. The population was bred by making 190 crosses among 20 different parent varieties and mixing all the resulting seed. This goes against the current thinking, where breeding aims to produce a crop that is genetically identical. Of course, this radically different approach raised many questions. Uh, but there was one wonderful moment on the day where the whole supply chain connected up and we saw a hint of what's possible. Earlier this year, Josiah Meldrum of Hodme Dodds brought some Wakelands population flour to Kimberley Bell at the small food bakery in Nottingham. Here's what happened. One of the most important things is that 
that I've learned from trying to bake for this week is that you actually have to adjust your perception as a maker and try and apply everything you know but to try and get the best product that you can out of the, the wheat. When I found out about the Wakecon's population it just seemed like an inherently good idea to me and I felt like it's my role as a baker to try and make that work as a product. It's not for me to turn around and say oh, it's not high enough in protein. I've only been baking with it for a little while. It's a sourdough made with 100% whole grain and the thing I've been concentrating on is the flavour. It occurred to me that with it, such a biodiversity and natural crop doing some interesting things with fermentation might yield a depth of flavour that you might not be able to get from a single variety. So that's what I've been working on. We need to understand the two different positions, you know, what the baker requires, what the farmer needs to get in terms of yield and reliability. And if we can bring them together and make a connection, which Hobmadot has done, then we can make something that the farmer might be very sceptical about, the baker might be very nervous about, actually work and create something delicious that people are clearly enjoying. So that's what we're all about. It's so exciting. It feels like really exciting to be right here, right now, surrounded by grain and wheat and eating bread. Like yeah, absolutely, and we're part of a global revolution. That's the exciting thing. This is happening all over the world. It's happening in the States, it's happening across Europe. We're in touch with organisations like Hobmadod, like Kimberley and the Small Food Bakery, like Martin at Wakings Agroforestry, who are rethinking how we make bread, how we eat bread, where the cereal comes from, what we can do to create a more resilient, long-term sustainable food system that produces nutritious, not just bread that fills you up, but bread that sustains you through the day, you know, and that's what it's all about. The bread was incredibly delicious, a totally unique flavour. The panel I hosted after lunch had a mixture of non-organic and organic farmers sharing what they are experimenting with on their farms. It became clear that all are aligned on principles of diversity, increasing soil organic matter and building a resilient business. One of the panellists, John Pawsey, is a farmer who's invested in a piece of machinery from Sweden that's helping build resilience in his business and has allowed him to experiment with relay cropping, directly planting a second crop into the current crop before harvest. My name's John Pawsey. I farm about 650 hectares in Suffolk. Uh, we also farm about 930 hectares for other farmers. It's all farmed organically. I also have 670 breeding ewes. We're increasing that year on year, really to sort of close the nutrient gap on the farm, to extend our rotation to include more lays and to ultimately build fertility. So we build a long-term sustainable rotation. So we've done two years of relay cropping and they're both using the same crops which is using spring oats with buckwheat. So the idea with relay cropping is you harvest the crop of oats and then afterwards you harvest the crop of buckwheat. So how do you do that? So first of all you, you drill your spring oats and they come up and then with our drill we can drill a row of buckwheat in between the two rows of spring barley at a later date so it, it comes to harvest later and the idea is to try and get two crops out of the field which sounds a little bit greedy but actually Actually, the upshot really is that you could get a crop of it, but also if you don't get a crop of it, it could also be something you could crimp a roll or roll down to serve as a mulch to suppress weeds, or you could just incorporate it into your soil and it would be a green manure. So it's just trying to bring sort of more diversity into what we're trying to do to produce potentially different results to either produce more output from the field or to increase soil organic matter or suppress weeds. 
I thought that relay cropping would be a good idea because actually it does have different outcomes. I think what you're trying to do as a farm is you're trying to spread the risk of anything failing. And the way you spread the risk of anything failing is to bring as much diversity into the field as possible. Now, I know that, you know, just having oats and buckwheat isn't a huge amount of diversity, but when you start thinking along the lines of, you know, other crops you could be growing in conjunction, and there might be three crops you could grow, or you might be able to harvest crops together. I think, you know, it's about taking the risk out of anything going wrong, and be it weeds overtaking your crop, and the way you suppress them is by putting in another crop in the bottom of the uh, crop that you're initially wanting to harvest in the second crop then suppressing the weeds or you know building fertility by incorporating the relay crop into the ground if you can't harvest it the first thing you have to know is what outcome do you want first of all it's your desired outcome because then that'll enable you to make the right selection so the desired outcome for us with the buckwheat was to possibly take a crop off it but also the roots of the buckwheat exude a chemical that makes locked up phosphate become available and the next crop we were going to plant was going to be beans which needs phosphate at the early seedling stage so that was what we really wanted out of it and the bonus would be that if we could take a crop off each Another thing that was a first, I think, is we had a sort of agroforestry demonstration. And I've been going to Martin Wolf's farm in Wakelands in East Suffolk. It's very close to my farm for a long time looking at his agroforestry system. And every time I see it, I get incredibly excited about it. I haven't done it at home yet, but I plan to do some. And it was really good to see it demonstrated here at Knock. And it's also very exciting that more people, not just organic, but conventional farmers are beginning to talk about it. Watch this space. Next, farmer Sophie Alexander told us about her involvement in compost tea trials, her on-farm research that is part of an innovative farmer's project. My name's Sophie Alexander. I farm in Dorset at Hemsworth Farm. It's about 400 hectares. It's now entirely organic, and we have a lot of cattle which are brought to the farm by a dairy farmer, an organic dairy farmer, so we look after his replacements. Otherwise, we grow mostly wheat, barley and oats, and quite often we grow beans. I've only been managing the farm, this is our sixth year, and when I took it on, I knew it was quite a tired, well-used farm, knackered farm. First of all, doing the overwinter cover crops, really long legume lays, and getting the cattle on, that was the most instant way of being able to rejuvenate the farm. But looking for other ways to supplement that, I couldn't make enough farmyard manure and compost to apply. And I read quite a lot about compost teas and then just happened to bump into a few people who were very encouraging about compost teas. I thought, well you know, let's give it a go. It's got a wonderful logic about it in that it's going to boost the microbiology of the soil, which is what makes plants grow. It releases nitrogen. It suppresses diseases. So far, the first year, what has been demonstrated is that there is a significant increase in the fungal and microbiological activity in the soil that's been treated. This year, it's tailed off because the last couple of applications we did, the moisture content of the soil was really low. And I think it was probably just applying microbes that 
couldn't survive, sadly. So the graphs show good activity when the moisture's high, but then not much. So I don't know whether it'll help us much this year. So last year, the trials were on an oat crop. What we found with the oats, and it was a surprising result because, you know, until I came to want to buy more oat seed, first oat seed in the spring, for spring planting, I tested my own grain to see what the disease profile was. And what we had in store, what we had treated with compost tea, had an appreciably lower disease rating than what I could buy on the open market. So I kept back some tonnage and cleaned it and had it tested again. And so that's a good result. You know, that saves money too. So difficulties I find driving over the crop. I don't like doing that. I mean, you know, it's really good to have a very wide sprayer. It's about 36 metres. And really what happens is, you know, I've tried to make the applications earlier and earlier because the first couple of times you go over it seems to recover and then third time sort of beginning of June end of May it stays there it doesn't look good and I worry about disease possibly getting into the stunted um, plants Um, so that's a bit of an issue and then I'm also finding the amount of water we use is concerning me particularly in this very very dry year Because we use a contractor's sprayer, so he's using it for conventional um, chemical applications a lot of the time, and he's incredibly diligent and conscientious. He wants to wash out from the sprayer every single trace of chemical. But he does use thousands of gallons of water, and we are using thousands of gallons of water in making the compost tea. You know, we're making 8,000 gallons The other difficulty I have at the moment is I've had this wonderful, very accommodating contractor with his magnificent Amazon 36-metre sprayer, but he's upgrading. He is going to buy state-of-the-art, very precision, sort of almost robotic sprayer. And I can just tell from the expression on his face, he does not want my compost tea in it, Um, (laughs) which I have to sympathise with. So... Do I have enough faith in the efficacious qualities of compost tea to buy his sprayer? It means I would use less water because I wouldn't have to clean it out as thoroughly. I don't know. I'll have to make the decision probably by Christmas. If you could find other farmers to go in on it with, I mean, is that a possibility? It could be a possibility. If another organic farmer was prepared to do that, they would have to be geographically very close I think it's great if farmers collaborate on machinery and things I really do but the reality is most of us want it because we want it when we need it (laughs) you know (laughs) maybe a compost tea spray it's not as vital you can move the application dates by a week Mm. or so so yeah maybe maybe I'll brew for other people and spray for other people there's a thought that's a third dimension I hadn't thought of Abby (laughs) I love that. We're being very entrepreneurial on the spot. Yeah, there you go. Finally, we hear from Andy Howard, a non-organic farmer who spent his Nuffield scholarship learning about intercropping around the world. For him, low input is not only more ecological, it's also better economically. Using clever strategies and well-thought-out practices can be at least, if not more productive, 
and results in a more viable farming business. So I went to a meeting about five years ago where a French farmer was talking about companion cropping with all seed rape and I thought, well, it just made sense. And I tried it on the farm and it seemed to work fine and that's what got me interested in the whole companion cropping into cropping subject which led on to my Nuffield. At the time I didn't see it as a solution to any particular problem we had on the farm at the time but now, now I know more I realise that intercropping has the potential to mitigate a fair few modern agronomy problems. Well, the first one we did was winter or seed rape companion cropped with vetch and buckwheat and that didn't seem to harm the crop. We used no herbicide, um, less fertiliser and we didn't see a yield loss. There's plenty of research now saying you can get yield benefits and better, less insecticide, less fungicide as a conventional farmer. Now we're doing spring peas and spring oilseed rape together and the idea of that is the oilseed rape stops the peas falling over and come harvest we can harvest both and we're not scraping the peas off the floor. We're also doing a little bit of beans and oats. The oats are helping weed control in the beans and reducing disease. And the last thing is chickpeas and linseed together. And again, the linseed is, uh, helps weed control plus disease control in the chickpeas. I guess so far in our field-scale piola, which is the peas and oilseed rape, and we haven't needed fungicides, no fertiliser in that crop, so I did a tissue test on the peas and the rape in the field at the same time. And rape being very nitrogen-hungry, you would expect to be low in nitrogen, but it showed to be high in nitrogen when it was mixed with the peas. So you can see that the two are working together um, for mutual benefit. I can see it being a part of the solution of weed control for organic no-till, but it's definitely uh, it's a challenge, organic no-till, and it wouldn't be the one solution, but it definitely play play a part. Just planting other crops with your main cash crop to help suppress weeds or outcompete weeds. The idea is really that you're filling the niche that the weed would take. So if you're planting wheat, maybe you should be planting other crops like oats, the spring oats that might die over winter, radish, vetch, which will help suppress other weeds. There's one guy in Saskatchewan, people say to me, intercropping you can't do it on a large scale. Well, he was doing 5,000 acres and 2,500 acres was um, in intercropped every year and he was separating it all at harvest. Um, so scale isn't really a um, a barrier if you think about it and he'd been, he'd been doing it for 15 years and then I guess someone like Gabe Brown in North Dakota he would never plant a monoculture he had livestock he'd increased his soil organic matter to 8-9% never used any fertiliser he was conventional and just seeing someone like that go from a low base to being almost without inputs that's really inspiring there's lots of stuff going on lots of farmers are interested I've spoken at lots of meetings and it seems to be in the press, farming press. There's two European projects starting, looking into intercropping, the Remix project and the Diversify project. There seems to be a real interest in intercropping. And for me, the whole thing is exciting. Growing two or more plants in the field at the same time is much more interesting than a boring field of wheat. It just makes life more exciting. I've been speaking to millers today. I've actually been and had chats with the end user and the processors, and they seem as keen as us to have variety mixtures, which is the simplest form of intercropping, which gives disease benefit. They seem very open-minded to doing that, so for me that's quite exciting. 
for intercropping to take off, we need to get the end user, the customer, to understand the environmental benefits. And um, it does seem that they are looking for those stories and don't really see a problem of having variety mixtures coming through their mills or their molsters. Great that Andy reiterates the importance of the whole system being part of this ecological farming revolution that's going on. We need to engage all parts of the supply chain with ideas like companion cropping so that millers and bakers also discover ways that this added diversity might add to what they are producing. The story we heard of the small food bakery is the perfect example of this. At the end of a fascinating and thought-provoking day, we hear again from Sophie and John as they look back over the event. Yes, lo- lots to take away from it. I mean, I like to do all those things. You know, I'd like to mint till, I'd like to do combi cropping. Jury's out on whether I want a chameleon drill, I'll see. One of the big positives is I really like the conversations and the exchange of information ideas between not just organic farmers, but non-organic farmers as well. I think it's a really artificial divide that's built up you know organics taking the moral high ground which is always a really dangerous thing to do and actually a lot of the innovation in machinery and plant science is all due to the conventional guys so thank you and they're the ones developing robotics and things which I'm really looking forward to and likewise, they're now thinking, oh, gosh, maybe we need to do cover crops. Maybe we need to, you know, use leguminous lays and bring cattle back. And if the organic um, sector hadn't kept all that expertise and knowledge alive and well, it, you know, might not be there to call on. Let's do more together and be less judgmental about each other. I think what was really interesting about the discussion today, and I would say something that's never happened at Organic Cereals before, is you had a panel of two conventional farmers and two organic farmers. And I don't think it's happened before. I might be wrong. What was so exciting, and I've sort of been feeling this before the event, but it really compounded it, was that a lot of the language that farmers that are seeking a biological system rather than a chemical one we're beginning to talk the same language i mean obviously an organic farmer we get a price premium we don't want them messing around with our price premium but at the end of the day actually we're all trying to achieve the same thing which is a sustainable rotation which doesn't impact on environment too heavily and also builds soil fertility so you know very exciting some great themes emerged from the day the value of knowledge sharing amongst all farmers, organic and non-organic, to build resilience into businesses. The need for more citizen science and on-farm research to help the sector to develop. And finally, how important it is to engage the whole supply chain. We've heard how farmers are excited to be working with ecological methods, diversity, and maybe even planting populations. But it will only be viable if the market takes this journey with them. That was the beauty of NOCC, Everyone from the whole system was there in one place, excited to work together to create delicious, nutritious products that are good for people and the earth. Thank you for listening. We're excited that Organic Farmers and Growers commissioned this episode. OFNG is the largest certifier of organic land in the UK, working with producers and processors to ensure their products meet the highest organic standards. This episode was produced by me, Abby Rose, with Joe Barrett and Katie Rebel. 
Thanks for listening.